Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome back again to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing the show with just one other person. This week, I am joined by Jeffrey Kahn. Jeffrey is an incredible author, speaker, and fellow podcaster. Jeffrey, would you like to introduce yourself, please? I sure will. Thank you so much for extending to me an invitation to appear. My background is a lengthy career serving the oil and gas industry, the variety of global markets, usually in a commercial capacity. I don't have a technical background, so I'm not an engineer. And uh, that experience covers uh, oil sands, uh, onshore, offshore, liquefied natural gas, all kinds of different projects. And then uh, most recently, I've been writing a series of books about the oil and gas industry's need to embrace digital tools uh, so as to extend the runway that the industry has to to continue on while we sort through energy transition issues. It's the digital has upended all of these other industries, and uh, it's my belief that these technologies offer the industry great promise to improve its environmental performance, lower its costs, improve its productivity, attract talent and capital. And uh, so that's my mission. <laughs> if you like, I yell at the industry with a megaphone and say, come on, guys, we got to do better. Yeah. That's, uh, that's my story. Okay. That sounds an amazing story as well. So how did you get started off in the energy sector? Well, I was working, uh, doing a university degree in, at McGill in Montreal and graduated with a background in, in computer science and finance and out of, um, of the business school and was looking for work in a company called Imperial Oil. We were, were owned by, um, partially owned by ExxonMobil, were recruiting. And so I applied and was uh, very fortunate to get the, get the, 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 the role. And I stayed there for three years. That was a great education around how this industry works and its opportunity. Then uh, I uh, was, was um, uh, went back in an MBA, joined uh, what at the time was Touche Ross, became Deloitte. And then I stayed there for 30 years. And in the last 20 years, Deloitte verticalized its consulting practice and began to focus on various industries. And I had the opportunity to... Uh, change industries at the time or pick an industry. And because I thought the I'd been working in China on projects and I realized that you know, half the world <laughs> has very limited access to energy, and yet it's so vital to uh, human existence uh, that I thought the the, uh, the long-term play to work in energy was was very compelling. And so I shifted gears, joined the industry and and, and, and devoted the rest of my career. 30 past years to, to the singular industrial occupation. Okay. So what is the biggest change in the energy sector that you've seen over the years? The biggest uh, change. Oh, so let's, uh, the biggest change. That's a great question. I'm not sure I would characterize the, the, the biggest change. If you, I, to me, it's going to have to look at these things perhaps in eras. So the, 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 the biggest change uh, by far, it goes back to the 1970s with the development of OPEC and uh, the nationalization of the Middle Eastern oil resources. 
that's that was the seminal event that forced a, a reckoning in the oil and gas industry around its its structure. The next biggest change that I watched, and this again, significant industrial restructuring. The, the major oil companies exited vast chunks of what they used to do. They used to be vertical businesses, you know, they had all drilling teams, <laughs> their own drill rigs and all this stuff. And they 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 did all their own engineering. So they abandoned that and outsourced all of that that stuff to create whole new industries, engineering, procurement, construction industry largely came about because oil and gas exited that industry. So that's a, that was a major change. And then the next big change was in the Y2K, this huge shift to SAP, major wave of rationalization. Exxon bought mobile, BP bought Amico. Then, um, and then now the, the big change we're going through now is, is this wave uh, related to digital adoption, which has been running now for for some time. And the big change in front of us is energy transition. So it's hard to say what's the single biggest change. Each one of these has been massive in terms of its impact on, on the industry. Do you think that sustainability is the way forward in the energy sector? Sustainability, it's so the, to be clear, the oil and gas industry and I'll, it kind of drives distinction between oil and gas and energy. Energy to me is uh, much bigger. Prop includes power and renewable energies, mm. nuclear, and so on. So just thinking oil and gas. Oil and gas, by definition, is not sustainable on a timeline consistent with human existence. So oil and gas is sustainable if you looked at it through the lens of a, um, a millennia, like we're talking 100 million years, <laughs> because that's how long it takes oil and gas to regenerate under natural earth processes. So, But it's not sustainable in a short-term human existence mindset. So, uh, And the reason for that is that it doesn't self-renew, doesn't self-generate, and it produces excessive levels of emission that are distorting our environmental um, our environmental stability. So it's, it's absolutely not sustainable. And anyone who thinks otherwise is, is, is just incorrect in their thinking. Now, can the industry may be made more sustainable? There are many things it can do to improve it's a performance, but to be purely sustainable in the same way that, you know, forestry industry rejuvenates its trees or farming rejuvenates crops, uh, it's not never going to be sustainable. That's just not, not, not realistic for oil and gas. Okay. Nothing. How do you not think it's going to be realistic? Well, because the, the emissions that come from burning fossil fuels are, are accumulating in the, in the atmosphere and are already causing significant weather disruption that we have to deal with. And the, the solution is to, you know, to, to stop burning fossil fuels. Well, if, if this industry was truly sustainable, we would be able to continue to consume fossil fuels the way we do, burning them, and we wouldn't be impacting the environment in a negative way. So until we figure out a way around that, then the industry is not sustainable. It's certainly not sustainable for society. And the solutions we have, carbon capture and storage is a great one, works fine at uh, where you, you accumulate all the carbon emissions in a nice place, single place, and you can capture them and inject them underground. But most of the emissions come out of tailpipes. And that means rethinking automobiles, ships, aircraft. The, uh, and that's just not, at the moment, that's just not practical. We just don't know how to do that at scale. Okay. Interesting. I mean, there's, the, there's definitely a move to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, and a lot of money is going into this question. How can we uh, pull CO2 out of the atmosphere at scale 
so that you know we can we can um, uh, bring the the balance of CO two in the atmosphere back into back into 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 balance. And so there's a lot of money going in that direction. But yeah. uh, we have a lot of work to do before we we can remove you know 50 years of of combustion of fossil fuels. Do you think that that's even realistic that we'd be able that we would be able to do that though? <laughs> that's a great question. No, I've learned never never to underestimate human ingenuity. And you, know, you throw enough money at a problem, you, we've humans are, are shown over and over and over again our creativity, our innative curiosity, our our drive. We successfully overcome problem after problem after problem. And so, it's I I don't believe it's unrealistic. But the timelines we're talking about might for for direct carbon capture from the atmosphere might be stretching out years. And and we need scale answers much sooner. Yeah, I agree. Actually, yeah. It's a that's a tough one. I I'm a big fan of carbon capture and storage. You know the uh, if you can it's a big flu stack for a coal plant. If you can find a way to c- capture the carbon and and put it back underground, it's a huge big big win. Yeah. Uh, to rip apart all of the infrastructure we've we've invested in to deliver energy low cost. But the reality is, you know, you need <laughs> it takes a lot of money, a lot of investment. Got to have the right geology. And very often these plants aren't located because you made the, uh, this forward thought thinking about, oh, let's put this coal plant where there's the perfect geology to do carbon capture. Rarely it's done that way, if ever. It's, the coal plant was done economically because it was proximity to the coal or it was close to a consuming market that would use the electricity. So the, we have to the the very often that's a that's a pretty tough one to try and find that perfect place where you know your coal plant and your your carbon capture asset are right right close to each other. No, that, no, I agree. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna ask you something else. <laughs> Far away. <laughs> I could listen to you all day. Actually, I could. Amazingly intelligent. So, who was your role model in your career? My uh, role model. There was uh, a partner uh, at Deloitte who was instrumental in my career. His name was Richard Cooper. Also, was uh, his um, friends called him Dick Cooper. He passed away a few years ago, but he was uh, he was my guide and mentor. He was energetic, clever. He was a great people person. He thought about uh, people's careers and others. He put others first. He's very successful. And it's been it was an inspiration for me for for many years. This sort of a very very personal, a very very personal level, and you know you you wouldn't know him uh, unless you were in my in that little circle of people, to be honest. But that was that was uh, he was my mentor. Yeah, he sounds like an amazing person. What was the most important thing that he taught you? Oh gosh, there was there's so many life lessons that 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 he taught. In fact, one I was just using today to, in, a, in an earlier session. Uh, I was I was helping someone who was thinking about a, you know, they applied for a job and they had the first interview and that was great. But then the next question is, how do you keep that relationship warm without looking needy? And because the usual job interview process is you call the person up and go, have you made a decision? Can I see somebody else in your company? Blah, blah, blah. It's all me, me, me. Mike, Dick told me, People don't work that way. If you want to get what you want, what you need to do is give someone something up to nine times before you've developed an, and the message they get is that you care more about them than they care you care about yourself. You you put you think about them more. That's how you create the sense of 
obligation and and um, warmth that translates into a a a positive counter reaction. So with my friend, it was okay, you've had the job interview. That's great. What are you sending this person that shows you listened and you're thinking about them? Not here's me and I want you to think about me. Because if you want that person to think positively about you, you they have to they have to see you as being thinking about them first. That was a great dick uh, message, and it's it's served very served me very well over the years. Just think about other people first, and and give them something, and eventually they will they will reciprocate, okay. unless they're a psychopath, which they they're never going to reciprocate. But most people aren't psychopaths. At least no, not okay. <laughs> so, what would you give a person that would be if you? If you did have a, a first interview and then you were struggling to hear back from from the company, what would you give them? Oh, little things like um, in this particular instance, uh, the interviewer asked a question about a specific technology uh, that sh- that they were interested in. In this case, happened to be blockchain, but it could be anything: augmented reality, carbon capture. So they ask you in the interview, they ask you a question: What's your point of view about this? Well, so you should mentally kind of go, all right, well, why are they asking about that quite specific thing? They could ask about anything, but they're asking about that. That's a clue that it's on their radar or something they're concerned about. So after the interview, you go back to your office. Now you pull something out of your collection of documents or uh, presentations or podcasts or something to say, hey, I was thinking about our interview. You were asking about blockchain. Here's an interesting episode that I really found helpful. I thought you might like it. Nothing to do with you. Right? But it's a gift to them to remind them that you're thinking about them on their terms, which in this case happens to be about blockchain. That's the little things that you think about that you you kind of do to reciprocate the uh, and, and keep a relationship warm. Okay, I would have never have thought about doing that. Yeah, it's because you know we're not programmed that way. Like when you're doing job hunting, right? You're you're pretty me centric. <laughs> You get, people can get a little desperate, right? I got to get it paid. Like I got to pay the mortgage this month. So it's very easy to kind of get very, very needy feel and, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, be, be sort of pursuing things on your terms. I think you'd have to do it the other way around. Think about them in their terms and uh, f- help them see you as helpful to their agenda. That's the, that makes them feel like they, you know, you're the right person to hire. Okay. I'm going to try that the next time. <laughs> Tell me how it goes. I will. I <laughs> Dick's, will. Dick's rule of nine, though, right? You got to do it nine times before you've, like, unless the person's a psychopath, you won't know until you can do it nine times. And if they still aren't responding to you, okay, it's not never going to go anywhere. But most people after two or three times, right? Okay. It'd be like, it'd be like going on a date and uh, you show up at the date with somebody and you've you've brought wine uh, you brought champagne and flowers and chocolates and a wedding ring and a wedding invitation and all at the same time. No, no, that's not how you date people. You start with, let's go out for coffee. And then you follow up and go, hey, I was thinking of you. And here's a little something I thought of. You 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 think about them and think about build business, 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 business relationship building, like trying to create a, a an interest in another person. Just bring some of that. That, that gift giving uh, in in that relationship too. Okay, Thank easy. You. Okay, yeah. think like a lover. 
think like a lover. You'll be more successful if you think about business as you mm-hmm. know. That's loved. very funny. Yeah. You're saying yeah. no, you don't know my, you don't know my date in history. No, that would, <laughs> that would not work for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. You never know. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully it might change soon. Mm. So, what is the most challenging thing about your current current role, and how do you handle it? Well, the most the uh, I left um, Deloitte uh, five years ago and decided to pursue my career on my own terms rather than working for for uh, that particular business model. So, I left and walked away from thirty years as a as a consultant and 20 years as a partner there and and switched on my own business. And far and away, the biggest challenge is um, the uh, constant business generation, sales and marketing effort that you have to do. Because without that, you don't don't generate the income lead, the, lead, the leads and the sales. And so it requires sustained, consistent, everyday action. And, you know, that's not... Uh, for for me, that's been a a, a a a skill that I have to nurture and develop every week. It's uh, it's not innate. It's not not something I do naturally, and so it's it stands consistently as the single biggest challenge. Okay. So, do you ever regret leaving your corporate job to to start up by yourself? No, no, absolutely not. Don't don't miss it at all. There is a, people don't appreciate this, but this is what happened to me when I left my corporate job. So I discovered, and a lot of people will do discover this. I use my LinkedIn profile, just as an example. I had 4,000 LinkedIn connections when I left Deloitte, right? 1,500 of them, well over a third, were actually with other people in Deloitte. And that was fine when I was in Deloitte and I needed to meet other people in Deloitte. But once you leave that organization, there's no reason for you to, if you're a consultant, why would you hook yourself up on LinkedIn to all kinds of other consultants? They're not going to hire you. you know, why would they? And so they, the network building that I did in um, uh, inside Deloitte did not serve me at all when I, and I had to completely, I completely rebuild it. And it's a much more interesting network at the end of the day, because it's dramatically not oriented towards other consultants, but real in real industry business professionals and business people. So it's a it's a far superior network, if you like, than than what I had before. So I, I don't miss Deloitte at all. It actually forced me to confront a whole bunch of assumptions about life and corporate life that, that at the end of the day aren't very sustainable. You know, way too much travel, too much way, time away from home, not healthy eating. All that stuff just was just went away. I lost fifteen pounds. I left Deloitte. Oh wow! Yeah, crazy. Mm-hmm. I had to buy all kinds of clothes. <laughs> the clothing tax associated with corporate life. Really? Like, how did that happen? Fifteen pounds. It's nuts. It is crazy, actually. Yeah, yeah. Ten yeah. percent body mass was tied up in you know the corporate life. Is to get rid of it. So, and then the the other challenge with you leave corporate life is uh, you need to um, there, there's a when you a lot of people if they say retire at sixty five which is common in Western world the day you retire is the day you lose that entire network of contacts that you've developed 
because it's largely going to be an internal network, people you know inside the company you're with. And the minute you're gone, you're ghosted. Like you don't, you don't exist anymore because you're not relevant to the day-to-day. So suddenly you go from, you know, 200 emails a day to one or two. And for a lot of people, that's a huge loss of identity and value and you don't feel relevant. And, you know, you're 65 and you're trying to figure out what do I do now? I'll tell you, it's a lot easier to do that transition when you're 58 than when you're 65. So that's my advice. I don't miss it at all. And I probably should have left earlier. Okay. Mm. So how do you, how do you go, how do you go from that readjustment to living in a corporate world and being so busy to then trying to, you know, because I do have listened to your podcast and it's, it's amazing, by the way. Thanks. And it must have opened so many doors for you. Oh, yeah. It's not, it's uh, the, the, so Adi, you have to think about this in my mind. I, I it was a, since I was a consultant for years, I think about these things like a consultant would. So I ma- imagine I was advising myself as a, as a customer. And that's how I, I thought about it. And uh, so I, I reimagined my own career and life in very different terms. One of my one of the things I wanted to do was make money while I sleep. When you're a consultant, you don't make money sleeping. You only make money working. But Elon Musk makes money while he sleeps because he has these assets that generate income all the time, whether he's paying attention to them or not. And so I had a, a ambition. I gotta I gotta learn to make money while I'm sleeping. And then I can sleep more <laughs> or go do, go do something else and let the money generate itself. That required investment in personal assets that make money. So in my case, it was books, articles, podcasts, training courses. They, they make money while I sleep. And so I was a key goal. Figure that, figure that out. And that was, uh, that was a, a major, major shift in thinking and mindset when I left corporate life. Okay. But you were saying before that you think that when you left, you were about 65. And then you said that that it would have been easier for you if you'd left at 50. Is that literal or is that like... No, no I, I actually left Deloitte at 58. Okay. Yeah. Most, people, most people leave their jobs when they have to at 65. And, and my point is that if you leave your job at age 65... And all you have is an internal network of friends, fa- uh, friends and contacts from the same company. At age sixty-five, that's going to be yanked from you overnight, and that that transition for a lot of people is very, very hard. A lot of marriages break up. Lot, there's lots of um, substance abuse reported. There's lots of suicides. Lots of heart attacks. Like it's a problem when you leave it that late, especially in corporate life. It gets ripped away from you, and you're left with nothing. And my point is that it's way easier to rip that away from you when you're younger at 58, say, because now you have seven years to go build a completely new business or career on your terms, and it can't be taken away from you until you're ready to let it go because you own it. It's very different thinking. And I think it's far healthier, frankly. I agree, actually. I I do agree with that. Yeah. Like I'm, I don't know about you, but you, but if you think about it, you probably in your your personal life, you will have, you you will be able to name names people who you know weirdly died when they were sixty six. How did that happen? <laughs> she just retired, or he just retired. Now they're dead. Like how did that work? 
And the, the reason is the, you know, this, this whole um, <clears throat> shift from uh, active corporate life to retired life is so hard, so wrenching. I didn't, because I, I do have actually met uh, or heard actually of some people that have retired and then they had to, you see, they're retired quite young as well. And yeah. it seemed like they would have their whole life ahead of them. And then suddenly they're just, they've had, they've passed away. It's yeah. Just... It's weird, isn't it? Like, I, I think there's something, there's something inherently wrong when that's the outcome. <laughs> it's not supposed to be that way. You're supposed to live to your 90. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And and do, you know, go out on your terms. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. yeah, exactly. I want to rust. I don't want to rust away. I want to, I want to come screaming into the finish line. <laughs> all, all out of breath going, hell, that was fun. And I don't want to sit in a rocking chair and just rust away. It's not my goal. No, no, mm. it's not my goal either. It's not my goal. And this is such a great time to be thinking about this because, you know, we are at an era of tremendous transition. Like we, the, the last time we did a, in energy terms, last time we did an energy transition, a big one globally would have been uh, whale oil. Probably that was the last time we have fully abandoned an energy product. China went through a big transition in the 80s when they opened up because they were, you know, they basically had no energy. It was all human labor doing everything. And they went to, uh, they did a transition to, to modernize, still underway. But uh, for the most of us, we, we've never been through this. And so this is, what a great time to be working in it. It's like, <laughs> so much, so much opportunity. It's crazy. Yeah, it is. I agree, actually. So exciting. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So I was going to lead on with, is there anything in your career that you still want to achieve? Still want to achieve? <clears throat> That's a great question. I don't know that I have career ambitions that you know, I'd say I still want to achieve. I, I have an ambition to replicate my, my Deloitte income, but not working in Deloitte. That's proving to be, I got close, but it's proving to be quite challenged to do that and sustain it. Um, I want to do a TED Talk one day. I'd like to be good enough that someone would say, we'd like you to do a TED Talk. And uh, so that'd be fun. I think there is lurking in me somewhere, there's uh, at least uh, at least one or two more books that I want to kind of get out. And so those are on my, on my radar. But I, I wouldn't say any of them are, you know, go start the next Tesla. Like, there's nothing like that. Okay. I think you'd be amazing at TikTok, actually. <laughs> I'd like to think so. I've been trained on it, and I, I, my, I've, I get paid now to speak professionally. So I think there is there's room there, but you know you have to be recognized by somebody who feels the same, and that takes time. You think so? Do you think it's because you see a lot of the younger ones on TikTok, and they're all like trying to do their bit, and there's some of them are really huge, but it would take. It'd take quite a few years to build up, I would have thought. Yeah, it's not overnight. Social no. media is like, oh, it's like Starbucks. You know, in North America, people will go to Starbucks three times a day, three, four times a day. It's, it's, that, it's that part of people's identity. So go get a cup of coffee. And uh, so in social media terms, you have, to, you have to be so appealing that people want to see what you're up to three times a day. <laughs> When you think about it, is that's crazy. But if you're doing a TikTok video every, 
you know, every two hours. Yeah, people will tune into you every three times a day. I think that's where there's something about that, like to, to get that kind of recognition and you know, you got to be you got to be doing this full time all the time, and it's got to be it's got to be something clever and creative. Otherwise, you won't build the market. Okay, mm. interesting. Mm. When you were in your corporate world, if you were going to hire someone, what kind of qualities would you be looking for? Well, so I I've only really had one corporate career, and that was for Deloitte. So the the skills that I was looking for. We're, we're, we're largely framed by that that singular experience, which probably is a little too narrow, to be honest. We're, I was always on the hunt for people who had tremendous interpersonal skills and were instantly likable. And the reason for that is that um, consulting itself as an industry is very per- interpersonal. So personal interpersonal skills were key, absolutely key. Then there was a next thing I looked for was people who thought like consultants. And uh, this is something you can sort of teach, but a lot of people come to it. Some people come to it naturally. And if you can find those people, that's better. So the way a consultant thinks is they, they can see how to solve a problem while not knowing what the answer is in advance. And in it, to compare this to an engineer, an engineer will know what the answer is, just tell you. And that's not very good consulting because people want to be involved in the solution. Like, how did you get to the solution? So the, a good consultant is someone who can share with you, here's how I'd solve this problem or how I go about doing the research, but I don't know what the answer is. I'd, I'd, I'd be looking for that. And, and then I'd be looking for, and this be on the third bucket, because I, this is something you can teach, learn from experience, is uh, do you have the technical skill that I'm looking for? So if I was looking for someone, say, with a background in supply chain, did, did they have a back, Did they work in a, in a logistics business? But, but that's something you could teach over time or learn over time. But the first two are very hard to teach. They had, you had to have that. Not, I wouldn't say innately, but you, it's, you can teach people to have better interpersonal skills. But if they have it natively, that's just better. Okay. Mm. I've never heard that. I've never, I've had quite a few. I ask this question to quite nearly everybody and I've never, <laughs> nobody's ever given me that answer. It's one so, way to think about it. Yeah. It is. It is. So what is your zone of genius? What are you really good at? <laughs> zone of genius. Uh, I don't think mansplaining. If you ask my spouse, she'd say, you're really good at that. <laughs> what is that? Mansplaining. No, I've never heard of it. Oh heavens! Well, in North America, mansplaining is a, a is a is a term of a mockery given to know-it-all men who talk about what they know, <laughs> even though you don't ask them. I accuse ChatGPT of, of this. It's like a, a mansplainer because you ask ChatGPT like a a four a, a seven-word question and it'll give you a two-hundred-word answer. That's that's mansplaining. <laughs> so anyway, I'm, I'm joking. Uh, my my uh, the the th- small number of things I'm good at. I uh, I sit at as a I I straddle two domains, um, which is relatively unique. One domain is oil and gas industry. From one end to the other, I've done a thousand projects in oil and gas from various levels. And the other is digital innovation and digital technology. I've done been working in technology my entire life. So I sit in, uh, basically at the cross street 
of oil and gas way and, and the digital highway. And that's why I bridge between people who are on oil and gas and don't understand digital and people who are in digital but don't understand oil and gas. I, I can help them collaborate, communicate, and find common ground. So that's a, that's a unique, unique skill. Second is I communicate well. I write books and public do my do my public speaking work and training courses and so I've been my entire life I've I've uh, this is something I do quite naturally and and so those would be the 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 two things and they they kind of feed each other as you can imagine. Okay, no, that's that's interesting. Thank you. Hmm. I was going to ask you something else actually. Have you ever had any career disasters? And how have you oh heavens yes. <laughs> Yes, complete train wrecks. <laughs> Not enough to get fired, but uh, you know, pretty pretty bad. So, do you want to hear about them? So that's yes, that's what you're asking. Oh, yeah, please tell me tell me a career disaster, one that went really bad. So I was I was contracted to a uh, company uh, in Calgary to extract the SAP system configuration from the parent company and stand it up in this new spinoff. And they, the, the, there was all kinds of problems here. Uh, I didn't fully understand SAP very well. And uh, I had made some un- totally inappropriate assumptions about it. The customer was very difficult to deal with. They refused. I went through 14 meetings and iterations of me writing and presenting a contract to them to get them to sign. Meanwhile, the date of the transaction got closer and closer and closer, and they wouldn't sign a contract. So I was strung out. I had a couple million dollars in accounts receivable all built up, but without the contract, I couldn't bill it. So it was getting awkward inside Deloitte, right? And uh, so this was just just completely, complete train wreck of a project. In the end, back to my, my uh, mentor, Dick, we talked about it, and uh, we agreed to walk away. So here's this here's this company. They're two weeks from their go live, and they don't have a system. And we we simply put the tools down and walked away. Very difficult meetings with the the customer to, you know, over this. And the only time in my life I put tools down. But I learned a very valuable lesson in all of that, which is if there's going to be a murder, hand around the murder weapon. So there's lots of fingerprints on it. It makes it very hard to pin it on one person. So by talking to Dick and all kinds of other people inside Deloitte, we got all all the Deloitte partners aligned to recognize that this was not my, me being a train wreck wasn't entirely my fault, but it was as much the client who simply refused to get to a contract. But it was a complete disaster. I walked away from millions of dollars of work, which we couldn't bill. Why? Mentioned, you know, screwed up the relationship with that organization and the parent company and all kinds of fallout. It was a, a disaster. Okay. Yeah, real mess. I was going to say, how did you come back from that? That's quite a big thing. I've heard well, of, I was about to say, I've heard of one other, yeah, it's not as big as that, you know, billions of dollars. Yeah, I've heard of, yeah, I've heard of a similar situation. Oh, that was, that was a bad one. Uh, you, well, as I say, the key was um, the, the 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 issue was we were going to walk away from uh, this um, arrangement where we were going to lose millions of dollars. So th- that decision had to be covered corporately, not not just by me individually. 
Now, if if I had selected or elected, because this is often done, is you hide this problem and you don't tell anybody about it as you work your way through to try and fix it. And by by being much more open and transparent about it, I, I managed to get my colleagues to recognize that this wasn't me. This was as much the client. And so another another saying is a problem shared is a problem solved. Or in this case, if there's going to be a murder, pass around the weapon so that there's a lot of handprints on it. That way you can't know one person takes the blame. Your organization says, well, we all held the, the, the weapon here. So we're all going to take this one. So that was how you that's how I came back. I had another one, which is another, another crazy one. We were doing a, I was a client in the oil industry, and we were we were contracted to do a uh, build a a, a a HR program to attract new people to join the company. And it required us to boost compensation quite a bit because they were underpaying for the situation they were in. And they gave us a spreadsheet with some numbers, and we built a very complicated model to figure this thing out. And then we presented it to their management team, and they signed off on it. And life is good. Then we discovered the spreadsheet they gave us had an error in it. And the numbers were out by $300 million. Now, at that level, you got to go to the board of directors and explain how on earth did you agree to a project where you misbudgeted it by $300 million? And it was client, we, when we dug into it, I go, how on earth did this happen? Our work's usually not, not that crazy. We just realized the error was in their spreadsheet, not ours. But they, they're like, that's not good enough. <laughs> you, you should have inspected our work to make sure it was correct. It's like, okay, got it. So we then put into place all kinds of remediation action in our own company to make sure that that never happened again. So a spreadsheet that came from customers, we would put through automated tools to detect if there was any you know cells that didn't add up correctly or formulas not right. And we made the problem go away. So the client was happy with that response, but hugely embarrassing for everybody because of the, the, the fallout was crazy, you know, all the way up to the board. I'm speechless. <laughs> yeah, three hundred million dollars on a spreadsheet. Like, really? Holy Hannah! But that's how that's doesn't take much, right? And some of these spreadsheet models are so complicated. You know, the and and you, you imagine you know what it's like getting someone else's spreadsheet, eight megabyte spreadsheet with gazillions of pages and all these formulas, and you're told go find the error. Oh, right. <laughs> Yeah, too there's much. A less, there's a lesson in there. Check yourself. <laughs> Don't trust spreadsheets given to you. That would be a lesson. But yeah, and we we uh, you know as soon as we found the error, we owned up. We said we here's the error. Got it. We found it, and and we did not shy away. I didn't shy away from going to the customer and and saying here's what went wrong. We're terribly sorry, and well, how can we make it up for you? And, and so we we but you know it's it is what it is. They they at the end they're like this you know. This happens. It it happens in business. And you you were not malicious. You're not trying to hide anything. You're doing your best work. You yeah, we both agree you should have looked at our work to make sure there are no errors in it. But at the end of the day, they I think they knew they, they should have count they should have doing their own their own work had the flaw in it, not not necessarily ours. Okay. No, thank you. I was quite surprised actually that. Yeah. yeah. Check your spreadsheets. Yes. Check your spreadsheets. Yeah. Check your spreadsheets. So I was going to ask you, how does your current role compare to your aspirations as a young boy? If you told me when I was six that I would be writing books for a living, I would, would have said, ah, that's funny. No, 
And when I was re- my first, um, I did my first performance review when I was working at Imperial Oil. The feedback was, your writing is terrible. So, and now I, now I write books. So the, 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 the compare and contrast is, uh, it's, it's pretty dramatic. But I didn't really, even back then, I didn't really know what I was going to do in the long term. You know, when you're a kid, at one point I thought, you know, I might be a lawyer or an accountant, nice and safe and, you know, but now I'm uh, an independent entrepreneur in the world of intellectual property. Uh, so it doesn't doesn't line up at all with what I thought I would be doing. You know, if I if I think back to the, the very very early early days. Okay. No, that's no, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, a lot of like, if you're a young person, you know, you look around your family and go, well, "What's what's the most successful person in my family doing?" Extended family, aunts, uncles, and stuff. And the most successful ones for me were lawyers. They had the biggest houses and they seemed to have the nicest cars. And I thought, ah, I'm going to be a lawyer. That looks like a pretty good gig. And then you get into university and go, mm, no, no passion for this. Um, go do something else. I think being a lawyer as well, it's a lot of hard. To, well, it's a lot of hours, but then you can say that about any job. Then. Yeah. Yeah. But to me, I think there's uh, the way I think about it is uh, imagine a Venn diagram with three circles, you know? So, so one circle is what are you good at? And another circle is what are you passionate about? And then the third circle is what makes money. And what you want to do is get those three to overlap somehow, because if you've got skills and talent and it makes money, but you're not really interested in it, you know, that's a job. If you have something that makes money and you are passionate about it, but you have no skills or training in it, that's a dream. You know, I might like to be a brain surgeon, but I don't have the skills for it. And then, and then you might have uh, skills and talent and uh, doing something and you're really interested in it, but it doesn't make any money. Well, that's called a hobby. And so what you're looking for is something that does all three, makes money, you're really good at it, and you're passionate about it. Now you can build a career around that. So that's the key, you know, is to try and find the that what makes your career. So at one point, I was very passionate about consulting. And so I made a great career. Now I'm not passionate about that anymore. So, it's, so it's, it, that would be a job. So I'm much more interested in, in other things. Excellent. No, I'm really glad that you're really happy in your current role. Yeah, I'm very happy. Yeah, losing weight, stress level down, long life. Life is good. Yeah, sounds it. It does really sound like you're having a great time. I'm having a great time. I live in a great place. I'm on the sunshine coast of British Columbia. It's called that because uh, it's um, a, a low, low uh, Vancouver area is principally a rainforest area, so it's a lot of water. But this part, because of the ge- geography, uh, the, the rain often misses where I live. And so it's con- it's has a higher level of sunshine than the rest of the Vancouver area. So it's called the Sunshine Coast. And, and it's not wrong. And so it's a great place to live. I've never been there, but it sounds amazing. <laughs> it's beautiful. Imagine no, like very mild winter. You're on the ocean. So mild winter, year-round hummingbirds hanging around, bears hibernate and then then come down and root through your 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 garbage (laughs) see what they can get to eat so it's bears are just waking up now so we have to be very careful about even leaving hummingbird feeders out the bears will tear them off the house to get at the the liquid yeah and then it's it's green and and you're right on the ocean so i 
I have a sea kayak and a stand-up paddleboard and I go mountain biking every weekend. And yeah, it's great. It's a great place to be. No, it sounds amazing. Mm-hmm. So what keeps you motivated when things get tough? Uh, what keeps me motivated? I, I don't see it's hard to say that there's any one thing. I just seem to have an, an internal um, go forward motor that doesn't really pay too much attention to setbacks. And I know it sounds kind of glib, but you know, when you're a cons- I, my first three years, I mentioned as a consultant, and uh, my win rate, in other words, you pitch an idea to somebody and they accept it and you move and they, they hire you, might have been one and maybe five and say maybe maybe 15%, maybe 20%. Most of the time it didn't go anywhere. So I'm very used to setback. So setbacks don't bother me at all. Um, but so I, this isn't, so when things get, it, things don't really get going that tough. I haven't found anything yet since leaving Deloitte. I would have to say there's not a lot I'd stare at and go, wow, this is really hard. I got to go do something else. I haven't found that yet. I'm, I'm glad actually. I'm glad you haven't. Yeah. Me too. Now, wait, this, this afternoon might pr- produce something. <laughs> setback. But, you know, I turn work away. I have to because I got like, so I, so I get very picky about what I do. So I get to turn work away. So that's nice. I get to hang out with people I like. So that's good. And uh, I write my ideas down and people pay to hear me talk about them. Like it's, you add it all up. It's a pretty good, pretty good gig. No, really. it, it sounds like a very good gig, actually. Mm-hmm. So one yep. final question, maybe. If you could turn back time, would you change anything? I would definitely change some things. As an example, when I was in my corporate life, I was not particularly aggressive at pursuing personal growth opportunities that I quite rightfully should have gone after. And that's a a reflection of a... describe it as a relative level of passivity and wait, just waiting to be recognized and you know acknowledged when in reality is there were people around me who were far lesser at the at the job and and uh, they were given the opportunity uh, because they were more aggressive in self-promoting and self-positioning and the like and so if I could turn the clock back, there are four or five times over my my corporate career where I should have been far more aggressive and insistent and and I would have had a different a different life outcome for sure. As one example, there was a um, <clears throat> when Dick retired and we needed to find a new partner for a uh, new leader for the the office. I was an obvious candidate was the office was energy focused. I had been there for years. Uh, I had I was at the exact right position to be promoted into the leadership role, and I was asked if I was uh, if I would take it on, which is the equivalent of saying we want you to take it on. <laughs> you know, you don't think about it in those terms. You think of the face value, and I said, "Well, I, I'm not sure I'm ready." And th- their their reaction was, "He doesn't want the job," so they found somebody else to take the job on. In the end, that character was fired. For cause. And uh, so I, what I should have done was been much more forthright, said, nope, I'm ready for that job. And I can't understand why you haven't offered it to me sooner. Like, what's wrong with you people? Are you blind? And, <laughs> but no, I was much more humble. And that, some, that humble, that humility gets in the way when you're in, in corporate life. You have to be far more aggressive. So if I could turn the clock back and revisit a handful of life events, I absolutely would do things very differently in the moment. Okay, that's a good, that's really good advice. 
Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I was going to ask you something else, but I'm going to leave it there because that was so so good. That's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank Jeffrey for your time. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening and see you next week. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.